You could be seated. Father, I, I come before you this morning, and I thank you for the riches in your word. This single chapter uh, reveals so much about who you are and how you can work, even in this world, to accomplish your perfect plan. I pray that brings hope uh, to the hopeless, encouragement to the discouraged, wherever they came in here from. Some have walked through dark valleys. Some have walked through, through pits in their lives, and they're wondering, is, is God still working? The book of Esther gives us a resounding yes, and I pray that you'd speak it into our hearts. Open the eyes of our heart by your Holy Spirit who inspired these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That was a good one. <laughs> some of you know from some time ago about a book. It was wildly popular in our country. It was a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was written by a rabbi, and, and many have taken issue with the title alone based on theological issues. That's a discussion for a different day, but what he wrestled with in that book is the difficult moments of life, and, and what do they tell us about God? Can I be going through this, or this, or this, and God's really in control, and he's good? And his answer, I'll share right here, his answer to that question. He said, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he cannot bring that about. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. In other words, God is not sovereign. He is unable to control. Is, is that the answer we come to in the Bible, both Old Testament and New not at all. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We talked about that last week. Here's another verse that, that brings forth that truth. Isaiah 45, 7 in the Old Testament scriptures, God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. That is a hard verse in some ways. You say, whoa. Now, let's unpack what it means and doesn't mean. It means that God is in complete control. It does not mean that he is the, the author of evil or tempts anyone to sin. His word tells us he does not do that. But it does mean that if a trial comes into my life, it is either by his direct hand or he has allowed that. Because if he is truly sovereign, he could have stopped it but he chose not to. God is sovereign. I know it's uncomfortable, but think about the alternative. Somehow God is not in control and there are accidents happening in my life and, and he is powerless. To me, that is, that is far more horrifying. We have a sovereign Lord. He's also completely wise. What does the Bible tell us? His ways are higher than our ways. And that's where some of our wrestling comes in. He doesn't always work in the way 
I want him to. The, the timing, I want him to. What does Paul say as he traces God's plan of salvation, Jews and Gentiles, Romans 9 through 11. At the end, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So deep, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. There's an Old Testament verse where God says to the people, you thought I was altogether like you. Implication, I'm not. My ways are higher than your ways. He's completely sovereign. He is complete in his wisdom. But this last one is the one perhaps we need the most when we're going through it. Some of you came in here this morning you're a child of God through faith in Jesus, and you're going through a valley. You're going through a discouragement or a pit. And the aspect of God that often comes under attack first is what? That, that God is also loving. Okay, sovereign, he's wise, but does he really love me when I walk through this? And the biblical answer is absolutely. He loves you. Romans 8, 28, 29 tells us we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. His children can know that he is working all things in their lives, even that difficulty for good. And the ultimate good is that you and I become more and more like Jesus Christ in the ways we think and talk and act. We have to hold on to all three of those. Denny, Mike, and some others of you knew a dear friend of ours named George Pritchard in town who recently passed and went to be with the Lord. Something that George used to say that Denny shared, I think applies here. George would often say, think about what you think about. Think about what you think about. And I'm going to bring it to bear here. What do you think about God in your, your moment of trial? Do you think all of those things, that he is sovereign, wise, and loving? Because I'm telling you, if you don't take by faith any of those, you're, you're going you're gonna to begin to doubt him. You're going to begin to distance yourself from him. It's only by holding on to all three of those biblical truths that you will have the strength to walk with him through what you're facing. I think of that, and I, I think about a book. If you're going through a trial, I'd, I'd recommend it to you. Jerry Bridges worked with the Navigators for a while, and he wrote a book called Trusting God Even When Life is Hard. And he thought about the different things that happen in our lives, and he compared them to ingredients in a biscuit recipe. How many of you love biscuits like I do? Biscuits and gravy, mama made growing up. He loved biscuits too, but he looked at the list of ingredients, and he said, there are things in there that I would never eat on their own. He looked at that list, what, there's salt, right? There's baking powder. There's cream of tartar, and I personally know that one's nasty because when my brother and I used to have sleepovers, we would put that in each other's mouths of whoever went to sleep first, and nobody said, mmm. They got up and spit it on the carpet. <laughs> but he, he said when, when you put all those ingredients together and then, then put it in the fire of the oven, the heat of the oven, 
out comes this delicious buttery biscuit. And he said, that's how I view the, the trials of my own life. He had some, some various health issues, and including eyesight and some other things, which you can imagine was hard as an author. But he said, there, there are parts of my life that in and of themselves I, I don't enjoy, but I trust God that he is working all things together for good. And that the, the final outcome will be something far more glorious than a, a biscuit that I will be made into the image of Christ. And how many of you know sometimes we catch a glimpse of that good in this life? But I believe there's some people that don't catch that glimpse of good until they step into eternity and see, oh, that's what you were doing. And that's when the question comes up, will I trust that God is sovereign, wise, and loving and that he is working. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Back to Esther. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. But I want to catch us up from where we were last week. Just a little review. You remember there's a pagan king over the Persian Empire named Xerxes. Driven by his anger, his thirst for power, his drunkenness, and, and he issued a decree to banish Queen Vashti because she would not come in to a drunken party full of men. Now, what did this do in God's sovereign plan? As we trace his, his finger through this book, it, it created an opening an opening in the queen position for Queen Esther, which would, would be essential in his plan to bring about a deliverance for his chosen people, Israel. He had promised that he would never forsake them. One of the verses in Isaiah says, does a mother forsake the baby eating at her breast? And he said, paraphrase, possibly, but never will I forsake you. And there was to be a great threat against all the Jews coming next week that we'll talk about. But here's this opening for a Jewish woman named Esther to step into to, to bring about a deliverance, not only for the Jews there in Susa, but for all the Jews around the whole empire, including those 50,000 or so who had gone back to Jerusalem. Because guess what? That was in his empire. You know that empire that went from Pakistan to, to Egypt. Okay, and what we're going to do this week is we're going to meet two new characters. I mentioned Esther. We're also going to meet Mordecai. And we're going to see how God sovereignly prepared them to be part of his deliverance plan. He used their experiences, both good and bad. He used their location right there in Susa where Xerxes was. And he used the timing of their lives to work out his good plan. And as we look at those things, I want us to ask the question, do I believe God still works in the same ways today? Spoiler, I do. I do. All right, first I want to start by talking about the king's decision. Last week we talked about Xerxes' decision to banish Vashti, but there's a part two. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, that's Hebrew, or Xerxes, had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And when it says his anger had abated, that's the same Hebrew word used for when the floodwaters receded 
during Noah's day, what happened? He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, there was some time between chapters 1 and 2. You say, how do you know that? Well, chapter 1, verse 3 told us that in the third year of his reign, he had this feast. Do you remember that 180-day party? Chapter 2, verse 16, it tells us it's the seventh year of his reign. Four years. Most historians believe that's when he went out and lost those two battles to Greece that we talked about planning for last week. And he came back home. He's licking his wounds, and he starts to think about the void left by Vashti. Now, we don't know if he wants to bring Vashti back or if he wants to bring in another woman to that position. It doesn't say us right there. But verse 2 tells us his board of advisors had an idea. It says, And the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Well, scholars tell us that there was some good common sense on their part, right? They did not want Vashti back in that power of position, position of power, excuse me, right? Why? Because they're the ones who had advised Xerxes to banish her. And you know that old phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? <laughs> you take that to the queen level, <laughs> and these guys knew if she gets back in there and he starts growing in his relationship with her, we're in trouble. So, hey, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. Now, you, we've talked about the size of that empire, 127 provinces. Jewish historian Josephus said there were likely hundreds of virgins brought to Susa. Bring them there under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. We'll talk more about that later. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, I think about that decision in light of where we're going in this book, and I think about a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 21.1. And I want you to think about this as you think about the leaders of this world today, some of whom you may be greatly concerned about. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king was absolute monarch in that day, and the author of Proverbs is saying, even the king's heart, God, God stirs and turns wherever he will. Now that means what? That sometimes God leads leaders to make godly decisions that need to be made. What about a moment like this? Am I saying that, that God inspired or tempted Xerxes to this lustful decision to, to bring in beautiful young vir virgins? No. What I am saying is what we read in Ephesians 1.11. He takes even the decisions of wicked pagan rulers, whatever drives them, and uses them for his accomplished purposes. That ought to bring us comfort in the world in which we live. I want to talk about God's preparation uh, of Mordecai and Esther for the, this moment in time. And I especially want you to watch the details in their lives that were totally out of their control, but were in God's full control. Because how many of you know there's situations in our lives that 
we just have no control over. But God's in control. Watch, watch him. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. There's their location. They're right in that same city where Xerxes is, okay? The son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, the, the phrase here they had no control over was they had been carried away. Jerusalem was sacked. They had no control over being taken captive. But some have looked at this verse and said, wait, that happened over a hundred years before, if we know our history. So that would make Mordecai like 114 years old in this story. And we learn that Esther was his cousin, which would also have made her very old, which is very unlikely when you think of a powerful, lustful Persian ruler choosing the fairest beauty of them all. What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, the who had been carried away likely does not apply to Mordecai. You look at that list in verse 5, it traces some of his ancestors. His ancestor Kish had been carried away. And that's how Mordecai himself ended up growing up in the Persian Empire. Verse 7, Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. That's where we learn their cousins. For she had neither father nor mother. That was outside of her control. We learn in just a moment that her parents had died. We don't know how. Maybe you are in that boat. Maybe you were there early on in your life. You could relate to Esther. He was bringing her up. That was something Esther had no choice over. Mordecai chose to, to take her in. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. That's, that's another thing she had absolutely no control over. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. I want to talk to you about Esther's opportunity. Verse 8. When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken. She was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And this is where we need to be careful how we interpret this. This is not some ancient Persian version of The Bachelor. <laughs> this is not ladies throughout the empire saying, I want to be on that show. What does it say? It says, Esther also was taken. Again, something larger than, than her sphere of control. Verse 9. The young woman pleased Hegai the eunuch and won his favor. That's Esther. She couldn't control whether she pleased that eunuch or not. How many of you have found that? There are some people in your life that no matter what you do, you will never do enough to please them. Well, she pleased him, won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Again, she couldn't control that. 
There are some jobs you can work at, and you could be the best worker there, but because of things set up, whether it's nepotism or something else, you're not going forward, right? She, she couldn't control that, but she was advanced. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. She wasn't telling these folks she was Jewish, and that'll come in later. It's not saying necessarily that she lied. It's just saying she didn't come out and, and say that. Verse 11, every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. I think about that, and I think about our son Jaden, who just had his first three shifts at Chick-fil-A. What do we do? He worked Thursday, but Friday night, the rest of the four of us go down to Chick-fil-A for dinner, and we're peeking over the counter, watching him back there, seeing how he's doing. He's doing a great job. Some other people from church went down there, too, Bill and Aaron and Stephen, so he's getting good company. Checking on how it's going. That's what Mordecai's doing with Esther. He loves her. He wants to see how are things going in the life of Esther. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Now, this guy, he does everything big, right? This is the guy between, behind the 180-day party. Now these virgins get one year of beauty treatments. It reminds me of a conversation I was having with Greg and Danielle and their daughter Katie last week. I asked her what she did for a living. She said, I'm an esthetician. I said, what's that? And she said, oh, we do waxes and facials and stuff like that. And I said, oh, that's, I'm glad I didn't know. Yeah. And Greg and I fist bumped and said, we hope you get a lot of customers, but it won't be us. You know. <laughs> she's an esthetician. She works on beauty. I don't know if she's ever had a client to say, hey, I'm here for 12-month treatment. <laughs> wow. Wow. Now, what, what were the rules as we go forward from here? Verse 13, it says, When the young woman went into the king in this way, after 12 months, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace, likely whatever clothes, whatever jewelry, who knows what else. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. Now, if you're a sensitive reader, that may cause a, a prick or a, a question in your heart. They were to go in in the evening and come out in the morning. Does that imply that Esther would have intimate relations with a pagan king? Is there sin involved in this story? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it says, after each lady did this, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Again, something totally outside of her control. And the stakes were high. Historians tell us that if you weren't the one chosen, what, what would happen is you'd live the rest of your life in luxurious confinement in Xerxes' palace, away from your family, never to see him again because you weren't chosen. And they wouldn't allow them to go back and be married to another man after being with the king. Verse 15, when the turn came 
for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. We don't know for sure why she did that. Maybe that she trusted him. Hey, he knows this king. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Again, totally outside of her control. Especially in a situation like that, where if you got any ladies that are excited to be there, you get this competition thing going, but she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Verse 16, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Again, something outside of her control. And that word love there does not necessarily mean love in its purest form. It just means that he pleased her. She pleased him more than the other virgins. Excuse me. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of student loans to the provinces and gave gifts with <laughs> royal generosity. It does not say that. It says taxes. <laughs> but I think about Esther. I think about all these things that were outside of her control. And I can't help but think of another woman earlier on in, in Israel's history, a woman named Hannah. She's married to Elkanah, who also had another wife named Penina. And Penina had a lot of children. And she, and she pricked and, and bothered Hannah to no end. And you remember, Hannah was at the temple just crying out for a child. And she was cry, praying so passionately without audible words that the priest thought she was drunk. And she said, I'm not drunk. I'm just praying. And he basically says, may the Lord give you what you pray for. And God gave her Samuel. And she wrote this in a song of praise. And think of this in light of the book of Esther, 1 Samuel 2, 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Esther was not in control, but God was. But I want to revisit that question of sin, because maybe some of us are still wrestling with this, like, and many have, not just for, for Esther, but for Mordecai, too. Some have said, hey, God already laid it on Cyrus's heart for, to allow the Jews to go back. Were, were Mordecai and Esther disobedient to stay there in Susa? One interesting thing about Mordecai, you'll see the name Mordecai in some of the lists who did go back in Ezra and Nehemiah, which has led some to wonder, did he go and then come back to Susa? It wasn't an easy task going back to a land that needed restored. What about that evening when she went into the king? We were talking about this at home. Did, did, did God somehow spare her on her evening from having to have intimate relations with Xerxes or did she 
we're not told the way the author writes. What we do know is she certainly married a pagan king, an idol worshiper. And if you think about what was going on in Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra was speaking strongly against marrying those who worshiped other gods to the, to the point where, and this is not for today, he told them in that situation, you divorce them. You, you end it right now. Now you think about these questions, you gotta think about them in light of what we said earlier. This was not some show volunteered for. The king's officers went out and, and, and gathered up these women. Should she have resisted at, at penalty of life? Should Mordecai have hidden her when the search began? Did he? But it failed. Listen, here's the bottom line. We don't know the answers from this book of all of this. We, we don't know if she was willing or unwilling. We don't know what was going on inside of her heart. The author of Esther, anyhow, does not answer these questions. He chooses to focus instead on the sovereign finger of God, which reminds us of something which is true of this book, but it's true of every story you come across in the Bible. The ultimate hero of this story is not Mordecai, the ultimate hero of this story is not Esther. The ultimate hero of this story in the entire Bible is God. It is God. And it wouldn't be the first time that God used a sinful human being if there was sin in this book, right? Anybody want to raise their hand? I'm part of that group. Look. Think about the Bible itself. Think about Jacob, the soup swindler, the dad deceiver. I mean, do you, any of you parents ever read that to your kids and say, see, this is how God wants you to be. He wants you to deceive your brother and your father. I had a teenager in the front row nodding his head the first service. I said, no. 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 What does it show us? that he was blessed and chosen by God by the sheer grace and mercy of God. And you remember he had to learn the lesson of dependence on God in a difficult way. He wrestled with God as he was about to meet Esau, right? And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And what does it say? God, God touched him and wounded his hip and he walked with a limp the rest of his life which would remind him it's not my deceitful ways it's dependence on God there were consequences for his ways in his case what about Samson just think about Samson for a minute a lot of us know Delilah but there were at least three Philistine women that guy was involved with and at least one of them was a prostitute and you remember when he first went looking for a Philistine, his parents were like, Samson, Samson. That goes against God's revealed law, not to mention you're a Nazarite for crying out loud. You're supposed to be extra set apart. And the author of Samuel says something interesting. They did not know that this was from the Lord. That's a weird verse. Does that mean God was given the green light to Samson to break his moral will and not be held accountable? No. No, we're, we're always held accountable for sin that's unrepented of and dealt with. 
What does it mean? It means God had a plan, even in Samson's sinful choice, to give him opportunities to wreak havoc on the Philistines again and again and again. You'll remember it cost him something, too. His interactions with Delilah led to his eyes being poked out and put in prison for the last days of his life. So, so where does that bring us in light of the book of Esther? If there is sin to be spoken of here, we must remember that the Bible does not condone everything it records. Just think of the book of Judges. Some skeptics will throw that out and say, I can't believe that's in the Bible. You say, yeah, but what does God say about it? What did he do about it? It doesn't condone everything it records. And here's the, the more important point for our lesson. He used all the details of their lives for his perfect purpose to bring about a great deliverance for his people. He's the hero of Mordecai's life, of Esther's life, of your life, if you're a child of God. Now, I want to talk about an opportunity for Mordecai. Verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. King's gate, that was likely an official position. You remember gates in the Old Testament? That's where the judges sat, the elders it could be that he was elevated to that position because Esther got in and put a good word. Hey, my cousin Mordecai would be good at, at the gate. So he's sitting there. As Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. You see, that's important. We've heard that before. Remember that. She didn't yet reveal their Jewishness. But what happened? In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They were seeking to kill him, two of his eunuchs, and historians have speculated why. Maybe they sided with Vashti in this whole thing and were still upset that the king had done that. I think about their, their position, and maybe they're just bitter for the king forcing them into the, the lot in life they were in. We don't know. But what happened? Verse 22. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He just happened to be at the gate that day. It just happened to come to his knowledge. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai. That's important. Mordecai discovered a plot against your life, king. Verse 23. It says, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the, the men were both hanged on the gallows. The, the Hebrew tells us they were impaled straight through. That was the Persian early form of crucifixion. But what happened? It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Another detail that was not in Mordecai's control at all. Number one, that he wasn't rewarded on the spot. Number two, that it was written in the king's records, which will come in as a key pivot point later in the story. So we see God work his deliverance. So as we close, we've got to bring it home, right? Because we're never meant to leave scripture on the pages. It's meant to encourage God's people today, and we're meant to live in light of it. So what, what about us? Do, does God still work in location and timing of our lives? Does he still use all the experiences of our life, the, the good ones and the hard ones? to work all things according to the counsel of his will? 
I believe so. I'm going to show you a couple examples. I believe he does so to draw people to salvation in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? I know that because of the book of Acts, Acts 11:26, As he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. When and where they live, determined by God. Now, I know sometimes we look around the world and, and I hear people talking about despairing because we're here at this time or our kids are born into this time. I read one guy said, don't do that. That was determined by God that you be here now and that you, you be in that dwelling place where you're at. Why? Verse 27 puts them in those times and places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. You see how he puts us where and when we are so we would seek him? Augustine, many of you know the name. He was a bishop in northern Africa, died in the third century A.D. Did you ever hear the story, though, of how he came to the Lord? To me, it's one of those proofs of God working in the right place, right time. He was an immoral man, moving from mistress to mistress to mistress, and it grieved his mother greatly to the fact that she was trying to get people to intersect his life and almost force him to be saved, which any parent, we, we want our kids, right? We, we do whatever we can, but a, a, wise, a wise person came to her and said, look, you need to take this to the Lord in prayer. And trust the Lord for the salvation of your son. So one day he's sitting on a bench with one of his friends and he's torn up inside. He knows what he's doing is evil. He knows he needs God, but he cannot bring himself alone to surrender to Jesus Christ. And as he's sitting there, he hears the voice of a child singing a song. Take up and read. Take up and read. And he's thinking to himself, he's like, I don't know any songs with those lyrics. Did your band ever have that lyric, take up and read? No. I don't think I've ever heard those lyrics either. It's like, but he had a Bible nearby. He heard those words, take up and read. And he said, wherever I turn first, I'm going to focus in on it. And he turned right to Romans 13, verse 14, which said, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And right then and there, he surrendered to the Lord. He said, Jesus, I embrace you as my Savior and Lord. That little boy singing a coincidence? I don't believe so. He also gave Augustine, a right time, right place moment to affirm his new faith and witness to it. After this happened, he was walking down the street and one of his old mistresses came by and her eyes probably lit up and said, Augustine, it is I. And you know what he said? With standing for his new faith and witnessing to her, he said, ah, yes, but it is not the former I. How wonderful is that? I believe God's still doing that today. 
Maybe that's why you're here today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. May that encourage you as you go out there and witness. As much as you're witnessing and praying, just realize God is seeking lost sinners far more eagerly and effectively. And he invites us to participate with him. He does those things so that we might be saved. But I also believe he works in our lives that he might accomplish his perfect will in your life as an individual follower. Where do I get that from? Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, his, his poema, his poem, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has good works prepared beforehand for the believer in Jesus Christ. What if we went out there this week with our eyes open, our ears open? So what, what are those good works? That he, the opportunities that he puts in front of me. On top of that, he equips the believer for the good works. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, speaking of spiritual gifts, says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That word each is important. He doesn't just say the, the pastors or the apostles or the prophets. Each believer is given a spiritual gift or several spiritual gifts to accomplish his perfect purpose in your life. But if you're like me, you stop a second. You say, hey, wait one second. Esther and Mordecai, at this point in the story, at least they had no idea what, what God's big picture plan was, right? And that's true. And that's where we're at sometimes. We're in the middle of life. We're in a trial. We're in a valley or we're in a confusing time and we can't see the big picture. What, what do we do at those moments? Well, I like what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. That's one of Paul Trout's favorite verses. The secret things belong to God. That which he has revealed belongs to us. To so say, Lord, there's a lot I don't understand here. I trust you with it all. But what you have revealed, help me in the power of the Spirit to obey. Focus on what we do know while we trust him with it all. Just a couple things. What if we just took these ones and really made them part of our lives. Love your neighbor as yourself. What would that change in your world this week, my world? Share the life-giving good news of Jesus as you go. What, what would that change in your life? Serve one another. If there's sin in your life, confess it. This one's important because what I'm not saying is that, hey, God used Jacob and God used Samson, so go sin it up. No. We know as believers we're called to confess and repent. Just because God uses everything doesn't mean we say, hey, okay, you remember God used Judas. But you remember what he said, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. He was held accountable for the sin. But you think about being raised up for the time and place we're at. And I think about an example of that in early church history. Some of you know the name Constantine. He became emperor of the Roman Empire and embraced Christianity as his own faith. And that changed everything. Going from emperors who were either ambivalent to hostile to Christianity, it was now the emperor's faith and and. Christians were walking around freely, going here, going here, and the, the emperor himself claimed Christianity. That led to some interesting turns of events. 
there was a, another emperor that came after him named Theodosius who embraced Christianity as his own faith. And he took the step of saying, hey, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your savior, there will, will be punishment from my imperial seat. There was a story told of a chariot race that was supposed to happen in one town. And one of the drivers was purported to be a homosexual. And so under Theodosius' watch, he was locked up. The, the citizens broke him out. And history tells us that Theodosius, the emperor, in the name of Christ, later circled a stadium filled with 7,000 citizens with his soldiers and commanded them to slaughter them all. 7,000 citizens died at his order. Was homosexuality a sin according to the Bible? Yes. Was his reaction way out of line for a professed follower of God? Yes. But there was a man of God raised up for this time. Who would stand up against the emperor? A man named Ambrose of Milan said, you will not be receiving communion or fellowshipping with the church of Jesus Christ until you repent of this wickedness. And they went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until the day the mighty Theodosius was brought to his knees in repentance. Think of the courage of Ambrose. Think of the faith of Ambrose. And I think about that and I ask the question, we live in the nation of the United States of America. Is there a time and a place for believers in Jesus Christ to speak up against professed believers in him that choose wicked paths on behalf of our country? Is there a time for us to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ as our only ultimate hope? You bet. Some may say, well, the United States is not God's chosen people, Israel. Amen. I'll second that. But does that mean that God does not care about righteous living and repentance in other nations? No. You ever heard the story of Jonah going to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria? Yes, there is a time and place for the believer to stand against wickedness which, and, and, and seek for change, which will, Lord willing, prevent the Lord's hand of further judgment on our nation and to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I shared a quote from a Christian rapper named YB. Today, I got one from a Christian rapper named KB. He's got good theology on this front. I guess they like it short, you know, it's easier to type in on Spotify, right? <laughs> he says, if your wagon is hitched to Jesus, you will inevitably find yourself agreeing, intersecting, and, and aligning with all kinds of movements and political camps as you travel through this world. But rest assured, at some point, Jesus is going to complicate things and probably get you kicked out. There's perhaps only a single place where we are truly at home, and that is with God's people. The fact is, is that we will never be conservative enough, liberal enough, or woke enough to be truly at home in any of these circles. 
there's going to be a part about your Jesus that will necessarily lead to tension and maybe even your cancellation. Welcome that. This makes us the unsung assets of whatever space we find ourselves in because we can speak in and out of those camps with transcendental truths. Our bias is to righteousness. We are nomads in this world and that very fact makes us powerful forces in the movements we ascribe to. Amen? Amen. See, I believe like you probably do. We're first and foremost citizens of heaven. But I don't believe for a second that that means we don't give a rip about the nation we find ourselves in in the meantime. I want to close. I want to close where we started because that's talking big picture national events. I want to bring it back to our individual lives. I don't know what you're going through this morning. Come back to think about what you think about. Do, do you believe in a sovereign God? Do you believe in a wise God? Do you believe in a God who loves you? And, and maybe you're saying, man, it's so hard for me to get because I can't see the Father. It seems so abstract, and I think about a couple things. I think about the book of Job. I think about what he went through and how horrible it was, and I think about how at least once, I think more, he said, I wish I had never been born. And maybe, maybe you're there this morning. You're just saying, man, I'm going through this or that, and why was I even born? And I think about how he must have had a million why questions, but even though some of those why questions have answers, there's some of them that don't in this life, and those weren't the ultimate answer he needed anyway. What he needed answered was a who question. How do I know that? Because you get to the end of the book and God never told him why. God never told him, hey, I had this thing going with Satan to prove that you're faithful to me. He never told him that. But what happened? God showed up in person and Job said, I repent in dust and ashes. I had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He had to have answered a, a who question of a God who is in absolute control. You say, okay, it's still abstract. The Father, help me with that. I can help you with that. The Bible can help you with that because of what Jesus said in John eleven forty five. What did he say about the Father? Jesus said, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. You want to learn more about the Father in the midst of your valley? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in the Gospels. And I think about that on a couple levels. Number one, somebody in here needs to hear this. God the Father does not love you because Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross because God the Father loves you. The, the Trinity was in perfect unity there, okay? Now take it to that trial you're walking through right now. I can't think of any better example in the Gospels than John 11. Lazarus, Mary, Martha. And I want you to track with me as we see the wisdom, the sovereignty, and the love of Jesus. And remember, this tells us about the Father as well. Okay? And the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's important to start there. Jesus loved Lazarus, and he loved him so well that his sisters knew. 
He loved Lazarus. He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, in his wisdom, he allowed things to go the way they would go because he knew God would receive glory. That would be very difficult for Mary and Martha to grasp at that point. It would only be looking back, right? But that shows his wisdom. His ways are higher than ours. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There it is again. He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Humanly speaking, we're saying, what kind of love is that? He loves him. He knows he's dying, but he stays for two days. And again, we come back to the wisdom. He loves him, but his wisdom is higher than our wisdom. Then Jesus told his guys plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. What? So that you may believe. But let us go up to him. Again, his wisdom help his disciples believe. Even when he got to Martha, you see that was big on his heart for her. See, he knew she needed to believe more in a person than a deed, right? Because Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he says, your brother will rise again. But then he gets to the heart of the matter. Because she says, I know he'll rise again. Skipping forward, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? He knew what she needed even more than faith in Lazarus being raised was faith in who Jesus was. That's perfect wisdom. Then Mary comes out, right? Again, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. And listen to the love in this passage. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Oh, he loved Lazarus. Oh, he loved Mary. Oh, he loved Martha. But the story closes with his sovereignty, right? Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I read that, and I think about what happened in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Remember Aslan, the lion that represents Jesus and C.S. Lewis's fiction, and, and there's some people wrestling with, is he safe? Is he safe? And you remember the answer they got? They said, oh, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. Do you believe that in whatever valley you find yourself in this morning, that God is good? He loves you. He's perfectly wise. He's perfectly in control. I'll close with the picture. If you imagine your life as a, a painting, a masterpiece that God is working on, and you look at your painting right now, and all of us would be quick to notice that not all of the colors are, are bright colors. Some of them are, are dark colors. Some of them are, are shadowy, and some of them weren't even put directly on there by God himself. Some of them are sins that I've thrown on there. Some of them are wicked things that other people have done to me. 
But will you leave this message embracing this invitation that I will trust in the sovereign hand of the artist to take all of those colors to work for the good of those who love him, to, to conform me more and more to the image of Christ. Lord, I thank you for this book of Esther. I love this book because it's a lot like our lives. Like we don't always see your name signed to everything happening and, and, and we don't always understand what you're up to. But it reminds us that even though there are many times we don't get it, you always get it. I pray anyone that came in this morning just discouraged, maybe not believing one of those three things, maybe not believing you're in control. Maybe not believing that your wisdom is so much higher than ours, that you're, you're not like us. Maybe most deeply believing that you don't love them. Is there anyone that doesn't know you through Jesus, draw them to the foot of the cross, the ultimate proof of your love, should we ever doubt it. But for any believer in the valley today, may you convince them of the truth of who you are. And may you give us confidence to know that we're here on purpose right now and say, Lord, I want to take your hand and, and live out the purpose you have for me. I, help me obey what I know and trust you with what I don't. Lord, as we take our offering, I pray that you'd help us as a church to use that for the furtherance of the good news of Jesus Christ. I think of the love and the wisdom and the sovereignty of the cross. He, he laid his life down of his own accord and he said, I have authority to take it up again. Lord, we trust in that God for whatever trial we walk out of here into today. In Jesus' name, amen.